And no one can take your joy from you. Praise God. Man, it's great to have the youth in here with us this morning. Fantastic. Great reading, guys. That was awesome. Thank you for joining us. So this is, uh, we're going back to our Gospel of John series. We started about three, four months ago, and we land here in John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 2. We're looking at verses 12 through 25. And Jesus cleans house is uh, this weekend's message title. We're going to continue working our way through the Gospel of John. I've got to share with you a T-shirt that I got from someone here in our fellowship here a few weeks ago. The T-shirt says, Jesus loves you, but I am his favorite. <laughs> and don't you ever forget it. Now, she gave that to me thinking that she was her, his favorite, but I said, no, you gave me the T-shirt, so no, I'm his favorite. And, and we always get into this argument about who's, who's God's favorite, who's Jesus' favorite, and so it's always fun. But I think this tells us a little uh, of something because the Gospel of John is written by a guy that keeps saying this. He says it five times in the Gospel account. I'm Jesus' favorite. Yep, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. And there's something about that, that we should really have this personal, individual sense that we are his favorite I'm so overwhelmed with his love. I, I, I'm hoping you, you're getting some of his love too. But man, I feel like, like he, he loves all of us as if there's only one of us. And I'm feeling like, man, he's loving me like crazy. And so there should be that sense with all of us. And so, uh, yep, he loves you, but I'm his favorite. And so that's John five times in the gospel account. In fact, we know what the book is all about, John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written, these are written so that you may believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in his name, you might have life. You might have life. And so take a look at your sermon notes here, part of the intro. God's will for your life is holiness. Now, immediately when people think of holiness, they just think of, oh, boring. That's not so. When you think of holiness, think of wholeness or think of Christ's likeness. In fact, holiness and, and happiness are one and the same pursuit. Do you guys hear that? Do you hear that over here, all of you youth? Yeah. Holiness, happiness is one and the same pursuit. You'll never be happier than when you are more fully devoted to Christ and you become more like Christ and you experience him in your life, and you become, as you become more and more like Christ, holiness, wholeness, there's a happiness in him that you can't find anywhere else on this planet. And so holiness and happiness are one and the same pursuit. So the story of Jesus cleansing the temple is a picture of his zeal for our holiness individually and corporately. Now imagine this. Imagine that uh, you didn't do any house cleaning or take out the trash for about a year. What do you guys think? How would it be like living with you, being around you? Any of you have rooms like that? Any of the youth have a room where you just let it pile up? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, so imagine that. 
In fact, it was interesting. Uh, I don't need to imagine it because I actually saw it because when I was on the fire department, I was working out of uh, Station 10, I-17 in Thomas. We had a call into the Encanto area, and it was a condo, and, and this guy hadn't taken out the trash or cleaned his house for at least a year because the trash was at least waist deep in his house, filled, you know, it, it, uh, it had all kinds of bugs and and roaches crawling through there. And it had a stench that when we got off the truck, we could smell it. And the neighbors had been calling on him because of the horrible smell. And so you got to take out the trash and you got to clean your house, okay? And that's physically. But what about spiritually? What if you never take out the trash or clean your house spiritually? It's going to start stinking. It's not going to be good. And really, that's why Jesus is doing this house cleaning. So house cleaning involves, or our pursuit of holiness and happiness involves three things. It's on your notes, soul care, soul calibrating, and soul connecting. And that's where we're headed. So let's take that first one. You need to have, first of all, soul care. And look at verse 12. That's our text. After this, after what? We talked about this about three months ago. After a two-week wedding feast. When they would do weddings, we'd do them for three, four hours. They would do them for two weeks. Jesus was at this wedding feast. He turned water into wine. And so he's saying here, after this, after this party for two months and hanging out with people, changing water into wine, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, why did Paul, or why did John put this verse into the text because Capernaum was Jesus' home base during his ministry in Galilee. And among many things, home is a place of soul care. It's a place of rest. Jesus knew how to pace himself. Jesus was never uptight, stressed out, bitter, hopeless, or lonely. Why? Here's your first fill in the blank. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, and so should we. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed, and so should we. I gave you some examples of Jesus doing that regularly. He's, he had a good pace to his life, good rhythm to his life. And, and in those uh, verses I gave you, he also, there's a few times where he takes his disciples away to get some soul care. And so we must, we must divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. So if you're not doing that regularly, your soul's not going to be taken care of. You need to divert daily. Are there times in your everyday life where you, you set aside time to just kind of get recentered on Christ and who you are in Him? So you do that daily, divert daily, and then you withdraw weekly. This should be that time, even right now, where you're just kind of withdrawing weekly. You're gathering together with us as we get recentered on who Christ is and who we are in Him. And then you abandon annually. When you go on vacation, it's just not to have a, you know, go out and get crazy and spend a lot of money and travel around and, and visit a lot of spots. It's really for soul care. And, and so we have to learn how to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Do you do that? It's important to do that. Jesus was often busy, but never hurried. There's a major difference between the two. You can have a full schedule and not be distracted. Hurried distracts you, not only from God, but from others. 
There's a distraction in our life. So here's your next uh, idea. So hurry is driven by a deep restlessness, the internal murmur of self-reproach, that inner critic. All of us have that inner critic, that, that internal murmur of self-reproach, that deep restlessness is the need to prove ourselves, that the deep unhappiness with who we are, the feeling that I'm, I'm not okay, I'm not acceptable. So we work and we work and we work to prove ourselves to others, to ourselves, to others, and to God. And here's what's interesting is that no matter how good the work is, no matter how, how much we do, we're a slave to our own ridiculous expectations and the opinions of others unless we get that deep inner rest. You must be at rest with who you are. Here's, and so what this is is that you, it's the work underneath all the work that all the vacations in the world can't cure. So that's what we're talking about, the work under the work. We all have work to do, but there's a work under the work. Here it is. It's your next thought on your notes. Next fill in the blank. Acceptance and identity come before achievement in ministry. My acceptance and identity in Christ come before my achievement in ministry. You see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus uh, in Luke 3, 21 and 22. Remember Jesus' baptism? Remember the Father speaking to his Son from heaven? He says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's from the Father God to Jesus. Now, if you're in Christ, those words are also to you and I. So we should hear ringing in our soul daily, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. All the, all the acceptance, security, significance, all the identity we will ever need to fill our hearts up to overflowing. We need to hear that. Jesus did that at the beginning of his ministry. And I think that he regularly withdrew to lonely places and prayed to recenter on that, to know his sense of identity and what the Father has to say about him. This is a joy that no one can take from you. God's acceptance is stronger than any human rejection. Show of hands, how many have been rejected by people before? You felt rejection. Show of hands, show of hands. People have said na nasty and mean things to you, about you. They've attacked you. They've come after you verbally. They don't like you. They let that be known to you. They're hateful. They're angry. We've all experienced that in our life. God's acceptance is stronger than any human rejection. So we, gotta, we have to be centered on that. I had someone tell me a couple weeks ago, told Nancy and I, it's really beautiful, they told us, don't listen to the dead dogs barking. 2 Samuel 16. Write that one down. Don't listen to the dead dogs barking. Don't be drawn into the craziness and the fight. Remember the high road we talked about? Got to stay on the high road. And so this is about being at rest with who you are. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come unto me, all you that are burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is the rest? The rest is that, that identity and security and significance in Christ Jesus that you can't find in this world. And so we are to work from our acceptance and identity, not 
for it. Major difference between the two. So here's an illustration. You have two men working hard. One is always weary in his working, and the other is always resting even when he's working. That's where we want to be, the second there. So house cleaning, our pursuit of holiness and happiness, involves soul care, finding rest in our acceptance and identity in Christ. But you're not going to be able to find that unless you do the next thing. Here's what you've got to do, soul calibrating. You've got to do soul calibrating. Here it is, uh, verses 13 through 17 in the text. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. I wonder how long it took him to make a whip of, uh, uh, a whip of cords. Can you imagine somebody coming in here, and they're sitting on the back row, and they're making a whip of cords? <laughs> Let's see if anybody over here is making a whip of cords right now. Anybody? Okay. Just want to see. I'm going to be running before you come up here and come after me. I mean, he's, he's sitting there. He's making a whip of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, this I found really quite interesting in the text. He says, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Well, why did he say that to those that, that were selling pigeons? Because pigeons are nasty animals. They're like flying rats. That's why he said that. No, that, that was a joke, okay? You're supposed to laugh more than, than what you did. It just happens to be in the text. That was one of the many animals that he, he drove out of the... But don't let uh, pigeons uh, nest in your home, okay? Because they're ugly little creatures. And so he says, and... and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, a prediction about the Messiah. So this is a picture that, uh, of Jesus that makes many people feel uncomfortable because Jesus goes fight club right here, baby. I mean, he's not, he's not pulling any punches. And, and so this is not some docile, neutered portrait of Jesus. This isn't uh, Mr. Rogers tearing up the neighborhood, okay? This is more like William Wallace from Braveheart. A anybody ever see uh, William Wallace, Braveheart? Freedom, bring it. That's Jesus right here. That's Jesus. And so, so Jesus is getting angry. So what does this tell us? That there are appropriate times for righteous indignation. The problem is, is we tend to get mad when we shouldn't get mad, and we don't get mad when we should get mad. And he's showing us there's appropriate times to get angry, that righteous indignation. And so, do you guys know how many times Jesus cleansed the temple? Anybody? Twice. He actually did it twice. The first time at the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2, that's this text. And then in the, se the second time was at the end of his ministry. You can find that in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. But what I find interesting as you study the other accounts, you get a little bit more of the details of what the heart of Christ was about. And so in Mark's account, this is what it says, and this is Jesus speaking, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? It's supposed to be a place for everybody to come and connect with God. But you have made it a den of robbers. 
So we need to do a little background here. Anytime you study the scripture, you always kind of want to look at the cultural background and see what's going on. Why is he getting so angry here? And so the Passover celebration took place yearly at the temple in Jerusalem. Every Jewish male 12 years and older was expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during this time. And what was fascinating is that Jerusalem would grow from 200,000 to 2 million people. I mean, it's just packed out with people. This was a week-long festival. The Passover was one day, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted the rest of the week. The entire week commemorated the freeing of the Jews from slavery in Egypt, Exodus chapter 12. And so the Jews considered the temple to be God's house. And so this is what God, uh, part of the law in the Old Testament, God originally instructed the people of Israel to bring from their own flocks the best animals for sacrifice. So this would make the sacrifice more personal and of greater value and, and great cost. So it'd be like sacrificing your pet because you'd, you'd, you'd get up close and personal to your livestock and so it'd be like sacrificing your, your pet. Does anybody here have a pet that they'd like to sacrifice? Okay, anybody? Okay, there's a couple people. Okay, I bet your spouse doesn't like your attitude about that pet, you know? Yep, that's right. So uh, I have a few cats in my neighborhood I'd like to sacrifice. Yeah, they're stray. I don't know if they're stray or whatever. I don't think the neighbors would appreciate it though. But that's what it was like. It was, it was like sacrificing your own pet. And, um, and so it, it, it ripped your heart out because he was trying to show them this is what sin is about. Sin rips your heart out, rips the heart of God out. And, and it's, it's really bad. It's, it's destructive. And so given the distances traveled, they got lazy, started purchasing their sacrifice, and eventually the temple priest wanted to get in on the action and instituted a market for buying uh, sacrificial animals. So many of them had to travel a long ways, and instead of bringing their animals, they'd come in and purchase the, their animal. And what had begun as an informal farmer's market along the road coming into Jerusalem had gradually become institutionalized in the very place of worship, in the court of the Gentile. They brought this stuff inside the temple. And so it became an out-of-control flea market where the merchants and money changers were very dishonest. And so there are two opposite and equal errors that can keep us from the joy and the power of the gospel to transform our lives. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the gospel can be crucified between two opposite errors. And every one of us tend to lean toward one error or the other. There are even churches in the community here that would lean more towards one or the other. And you need to be aware of it. And this is part of this soul calibrating. If we're going to really know deep in our heart our sense of acceptance and identity in Christ, we have to do this soul calibrating because our tendency for all of us is to swing to one extreme or the other. And so what makes Jesus angry here? There's two things, legalism and liberalism, religion, irreligion. And by the way, I want us, as we look at this, I don't want to think about the churches in the community or the people that you might know. Certainly, there are those that would fit these categories. But let's look at our own hearts. We need to be more concerned about us 
I'm not pointing the finger out there. We need to point the finger in here because we don't want to fall prey to either one of these extremes. We want to regularly examine our hearts. We want to do our own house cleaning. And it's really important for us to do that. And so the first one, you can see that on your notes, is moralism or legalism. I think that's your fill in the blank there. Or religion. And this is what it sounds like. I obey, therefore God accepts me. By the way, if you're not clear in your explanation of the gospel, oftentimes this is what people think that you're, you're talking about. Oh, I got to get my act together, got to start living right, and then God will accept me and bless me. Well, that's not the gospel. That's called moralism. That's legalism. That's religion. It's truth minus grace. And his blessings are conditional. Now, how does this tie back to our story of Jesus cleansing the temple? Well, let me give you some more background. They were making it hard for people to connect with God with their legalistically inflated money exchange rate for temple coins to pay the temple tax. So they were all required to pay a temple tax. Oh, but you couldn't use the cultural money that was in the city. You had to come in and make an exchange of your money for the temple coins. And it was highly inflated. And then then you could give to God through the temple coins. Have you ever been to Peter Piper Pizza? Huh? Take your family there? Oh, you can't play those machines, those little fun machines, you know, all the video games and stuff like that. You can't pay those with your own coins. You've got to go get your coins yourself at a highly inflated price. You get all these little coins. You dump them into the machine. They give you these little tickets to buy junk that you could buy at the dollar store. And not only that, the pizza isn't even that good. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, oh, oh. They're, they're calling me on that one right there. I didn't have anybody in the first service or last night's service do that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> Woo. I'm going to talk to you guys right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you, get a, you get a little bit of a flavor for what was going on here. And, and not only that, the sacrificial animals cost 20 times their original value. Have you ever gone to Disneyland? And you get real hungry, and you want to go buy a hamburger? That hamburger is $1,000. Oh, my goodness. I feel like somebody stuck a gun to my back and held me up when I go to Disneyland. But that's what was happening right here. That's exactly what was going on. So let's make an application here. How does this apply to us, this idea of, of legalism? And this is how it would apply to us today. These are churches or people who are very self-righteous, have an attitude of superiority, claim to be above reproach, they're sinless. They're very puffed up by their knowledge about God. I know more than you. You're not as smart as me. Have an unforgiving, judgmental spirit. They have this joyless fear-motivated compliance to rules and can be very angry and bitter people. And in fact, moralists tend to raise atheists and Pharisees. And so that's, that's the one extreme we can fall prey to. Moralism, legalism, I obey, there, I, I obey, therefore God accepts me and blesses me. Here's the other extreme. It's antinomianism. The word antinomianism, antinome, nome is law, anti-law 
or liberalism or irreligion. God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. It's grace minus truth. His blessings are unconditional. God just loves and forgives everybody because that's what he does. So I can live like hell and he's going to forgive me. I mean, I actually have heard people say, yeah, okay, yeah, it doesn't matter really if I, if I do these bad things because God forgives me and accepts everybody anyway. That's called cheap grace. That's not the gospel. That's that extreme uh, of that, that opposite extreme from moralism, antinomianism. Let me give you a little more background here. And so you can see where it fits into the story. So they had turned this sacred place, the temple, where the nations were to encounter God into a circus-like atmosphere. I mean, what would that look like if we did that here? The circus-like atmosphere. So while, I, while during the worship and while I'm preaching, that they, we'd have people walking the aisles selling popcorn and, and soda and kind of yelling, hey, popcorn, soda, over here. And you're trying to pay attention and uh, creating just such disturbance. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? But that's what was going on. It's supposed to be a place where they could connect with God, but there was just all this commotion, kind of a circus kind of atmosphere. And they were trivializing God, his word, and worship, and it was all form and no substance, just going through the motions without any emotion whatsoever. Here's the application for today. These are churches or people who are marked by formalism. You're just coming to church, check the box. Oh, yeah, that's what I do. I go to church. No, but did you, did you have an encounter with Christ? Did you, did you really encounter him or know him or get to know him? Are you, are you worshiping God or are you just worshiping yourself? Are you there to be entertained or to really have an encounter with God? So, so these are people just checking the church box. The gospel is missing peripheral, occasional, or incidental. They have a low view of God, high view of man, low view of God's word, low view of sin, very consumeristic values, pragmatic methodology, which would mean it's more about self-help and how-to rather than really beholding the glory of God and being transformed by him. And they tend to confuse entertainment with the true encounter with God. It's known as cheap grace. That's what they were doing. So you could actually see in the temple area, where the, where the nations were to encounter Christ, there was this combination, kind of one-two punch, was liberalism and legalism. So here's your next fill-in-the-blank on your notes. So legalism and liberalism will rob you of the joy and the power of the gospel to, to change your life. In fact, here's the next couple thoughts. So liberalism minimizes or mutes our dire condition apart from Christ. In other words, our sinfulness. It doesn't talk about sinfulness. Don't talk about sin. We have enough negative in our life. Don't want to talk about sin. And legalism minimizes and mutes the magnitude of God's provision through Christ's grace. So let me give you an illustration here. So let's just say you, uh, you invite Nancy and I over for dinner to your house. That's not a bad idea, actually. Uh, actually, many of you have done that, and we appreciate it. But let's just say we're waiting there for you. You're not home yet. We're waiting outside. And a bill collector shows up. And uh, I pay the bill in full for you. You show up. I tell, I tell you, hey, a bill collector showed up and we paid it for you. And you wouldn't know how excited to be until you knew the, what the bill was. Is that true? And so I, if it was like uh, postage due, yeah, a mailman showed up. You, you owed some postage due. And, 
paid him a few bucks, took care of that, it's paid in full. You might just slap me on the back and say, hey, thank you. But let's say that it wasn't, uh, wasn't postage due. In fact, it was uh, the IRS officer along with the FBI showed up because you had evaded taxes, tax evasion for over 20 to 30 years, and they were coming to put you in prison for most of the rest of your life, okay? You wouldn't just slap me on the back and say, hey, thanks a lot, buddy. You'd come over there and hug me so tightly, and you would be so filled with gratitude, and you would feel forever indebted to me. Is that not true? Yeah. The debt that our Savior paid for us was beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. We owed a debt to God because of our sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. You and I were doomed for all eternity to be eternally separated from our Creator, and there wasn't a thing we could do about it. And yet He sent His Son, our Savior, the God of the galaxies, loved us and came to this earth and died for us in our place for our sins. We were awaiting execution. He said, nope, move out of the way. I'm going to take that for you. That was the debt. So when we understand the debt, our dire condition apart from Christ and the magnitude of his provision, that will naturally create within us an unspeakable and glorious joy, an indescribable, indestructible joy, a joy that nothing or no one can take from you. I mean, so I can always tell people that really understand the gospel because when you start talking about Jesus and what he did, they don't just yawn and go, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Tell me something new. There is nothing new. They want to hear it again and again and again because they are excited about what Christ has done for them. They will go through the ceiling with joy and love knowing, oh, my goodness, what he's done for me, it is out of this world. In fact, if the gospel message isn't the most amazing message you've ever heard, you haven't heard it. You need to hear it. Your heart needs to be ravished by it. You need to be captivated by it. You need your heart, believe me, when you understand the gospel, and he gets a hold of your heart, your heart is smitten by the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to live for him, you want to love him, you want to experience him, you want to tell the world about him. See, it has to have the combination of both. The truth, I'm I'm sinful, I'm separated from God, and the grace that God reconciled me to the Father once and for all. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. And so Jesus was full of grace and truth. John 1.14. Got to have those, the combination of both. So house cleaning, our pursuit of holiness and happiness involves soul care, finding rest in our acceptance and identity in Christ. Soul calibrating is avoiding the two opposite and equal errors of the gospel. We've got to avoid those because we're not going to experience the life change and the joy in all that we have, finding that rest and acceptance the rest in our acceptance and identity in Christ. And so we got to take it to the next step, soul connecting. And that's what Jesus does for us in verses 18 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Let me read these. And so this is really being centered on the gospel. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple 
of his body. So what is he talking about here? His crucifixion. And when therefore he was raised, so you got his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, the basic gospel message, he died in our place for our sins to once and, once and for all reconcile us to the Father Raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What was that about at the very end? Here's what it means right here. Verdicts of earthly courts don't matter when you know how you are regarded by the heavenly court. That's why he didn't entrust himself to man. He knew what the Father thought of him. That was the most important thing in his life, and it should be the most important thing in our lives. So here's, here's truth and grace. When you look at the cross, this is what should come to mind. Truth and grace. Here's the truth. You and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful. Jesus had to die for us. So the gospel is indispensable. There is no other way. There's no other name in heaven by which we can be saved. Acts 4.12. So it's indispensable. You want to have a right relationship with God? You want to go to heaven? You want to have God in your life? You want to experience the fullness of life that only he can give you? It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus Christ. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I'm more, I'm, I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me. That's the truth. Here's the grace. So miss the next part. Here's the next part. Here's the grace part. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. <laughs> he loved me so much he wanted to die for me. Not that he had to die for me. He wanted to die for me. You hear the costliness of this, that the God of the galaxies would come to planet Earth and had to die for me, but he wanted to die for me. That's why it tells us in uh, Hebrews 12 too, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did that for me and you. And so that's what transforms your heart. Truth, grace, combination. Unbelievable. Absolutely amazing. And so moralism, legalism, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Truth minus grace, his blessings are conditional. Antinomianism, liberalism, God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. Grace minus truth, his blessings are unconditional. Now we come to the gospel. And by the way, you need to explain this to people when you're inviting people to Christ because otherwise they'll swing to one extreme or the other. They'll think it's moralism. Oh, I got to get my act together. I got to become perfect or start reading my Bible or start praying or start... They're going to confuse it with the gospel. That's not the gospel. The Bible doesn't say get your act together and then come to Jesus. It just says come to Jesus just as you are. That's moralism. Or they could fall prey to liberalism where it just says, yeah, it doesn't matter. He loves everybody. And when people say that, you ask them, well, what did it cost your God to save you? He just loves everybody. Well, it didn't cost him much, did it? You don't have a God that died on the cross for you. Most liberalism has exactly that. They don't have much 
basis for his love. I'm telling you, the God of the galaxies loved you so much, he died in your place for your sins to give you a life that you can never find apart from him. And that's the gospel. And that's important, so you've got to make that distinction. So the gospel is this, liberty. That's your fill in the blank there. Gospel is liberty, a liberty, a freedom unlike you'll ever experience. God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. I'm accepted, I have my identity in Christ, therefore I want, my motivation is I want to honor him. This is grace plus truth. So here's a big question. Here's a big question. And I've asked you this question many times before. It's on your notes there if you're following. Are his blessings conditional or unconditional? What do you guys think? Yes. They're both. They're both. In fact, take a look at this next thing. Because on the cross, Jesus completely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you completely unconditionally. You hear that? So his love and acceptance for you is unconditional because Jesus met the conditions of the law for you on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and through 10, actually, it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so there was something that happened when Jesus died on the cross. There was an earthquake. And in, in the temple, we're talking about the temple, there was something in the most holy place within the temple that happened. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? What happened? What happened to the curtain? It was torn from top to bottom, almost as if God was saying, hey, I'm ripping a hole in that. And by the way, the curtain was, was actually 30 feet high and 30 feet wide and four inches thick. No man could do that. They even said that if they tied up a couple of horses on each end, two horses could never rip it apart. So it was almost like God was saying, I'm going to rip this apart, and now you are welcome into this most holy place. By the way, you need to understand that the Holy of Holies was a place where the high priest could only go into this area once a year, and he had to go through all sorts of ceremonial cleansing. And if he didn't do it appropriately, he'd walk in there. He'd be struck dead right there on the spot because of the holiness of God. And so what they would do is after going through the ceremony of cleansing, they would put bells on the bottom of their, their robe, and they would tie a rope around their ankle. And when they didn't hear the bells ringing in there anymore, they would just have to drag the guy out. Nobody dared go in there because you would be struck by the holiness of God. And now... God has ripped it from top to bottom, and he welcomes us into his presence. All the conditions have been met, and now he loves us unconditionally. That's amazing. That means not only do we have access into the throne room of God, we have intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. That's what we all long for, whether we realize it or not, is to know this holy, righteous, loving God. And now you can know him right now because all the conditions have been met. He loves you unconditionally. It's absolutely breathtaking. It's amazing. And now the same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses, Exodus 33:20, now comes into the hearts of those pardoned by Christ. I'm telling you, there's nothing better. Listen to me. There's nothing better than intimacy with God. If you have an intimate relationship with him, that's what you were created for. There's absolutely nothing better than that. He met all the conditions so that he can love you unconditionally. 
So, yeah, do we screw up? Do we mess up? Do we make a mess of our lives? Yeah, yep, 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 all, all of the above. And so this is what it does, and this is really this idea this idea of holiness is this. It leads to a paradoxical obedience. This is on your uh, notes. This leads to a paradoxical obedience. So this, our pursuit of holiness and happiness. I take sin seriously and avoid it like crazy because it's very destructive, and it is why Jesus died. By the way, if you think that sin is going to make you happier than the Savior, you're delusional. I mean, you're not thinking clearly. You're being deceived. That doesn't make any sense. You're going to be happier by pursuing your own, your own ways outside of God's perimeters, his, his directives. By the way, that's trampling on God's love and wisdom because he's, he's told us in his word, this is how I want you to live because I know this is what's going to make you the happiest. And this is the best way to live. And so he's, de- he's defined that for us in his word. But for you to think, no, nah, I don't need that. I'm going to live my own way is a trampling on his perfect love and infinite wisdom. It doesn't make sense. We're delusional. We're deceived. You're duped. You're duped by the enemy. If you believe that, I pray that God would open your eyes to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what you can find and experience only in, in Jesus Christ. Okay, I kind of went off a little bit. Let me, let me keep going here. I take sin seriously and avoid it like crazy because it's very destructive and it is why Jesus died. But if and when I do sin, I don't fall into condemnation or despair because it is why Jesus died. So 1 John 1, 8 and 9 um, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So let me just show of hands real, real quick. How many would say that you are without sin? Show of hands, you're without sin. I'm not raising my hand, okay? I got both hands down right now. Okay, anybody here? Anybody here without, without sin? If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. If you actually think that, you don't want to raise your hand right now, come up at the end for prayer, okay? Because... It, None of us are without sin. None of us. I mean, look around. Look around. None of us in here are without sin. And if you're in a small group and you got one of those holier-than-thou kind of people in that small group, like, hey, I don't have the problems that you guys have. You guys are really a wreck. I kind of am above that. I'm better than you. And, you know, I don't really struggle. What you got to do in that small group is grab that person, throw them in the middle of the room, and dogpile them. <laughs> in Jesus' name. Okay? Righteous indignation. Maybe you shouldn't do that. But just take them to this verse. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But listen to this. But if we confess our sins, <laughs> he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm a mess, but I can't believe that he met all the conditions so that he could love me unconditionally. I'm going to revel in that. I'm going to enjoy that. I blow it. I'm going to get back up. I'm going to keep running back to him. And little by little, he will transform my life, and I will become more holy and happy in him. I'll become more and more like Christ. By the way, uh, holiness or Christ-likeness is not found by direct pursuit. You can't do it by saying, I'm going to be holy today. You're not going to find it that way. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to fix my eyes on being holy. Well, don't do that. Fix your eyes on Jesus because it's... uh, It's not, don't focus on being like Christ, focus on being with Christ, and you'll become more and more like Christ. That's what the gospel's about, that you are with Christ. You have relationship with him. Walk with him, know him, experience him, and in time, he will transform your life. There's nothing like it. So here's the last statement, last statement. 
The thing that most assures you that you have unconditional acceptance and identity because of what Christ has done. So that's a fact. All the conditions have been made. You have unconditional acceptance and identity in Christ. You can have intimacy with God today, right now, and tomorrow, and the next day until he takes you home to be with him. You can't foul that up. He's already met all the conditions. And that gives me confidence. And so the thing that most assures you that you have unconditional acceptance and identity because of what Christ Jesus has done is the thing that most motivates you to want to live for his glory. So when I see people that want to live for his glory, and they're not perfect by far, but I know that they understand that because they're living in the reality of all that they have through Jesus Christ. There's nothing better, not a better life. So commit your life to Jesus. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from him. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and confess him as Lord and Savior and live your life for him and for his glory because there's no greater joy and that joy can never be taken from you. Now, so next weekend, we're going to talk about God so loved the world. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 will be our text. You can study that ahead. My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service, also along with any available uh, elders. And if you are new here, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, help us. Help us to often withdraw to lonely places and pray to get the soul care we all so desperately need so that our achievement in ministry would flow out of our acceptance and identity in you. Protect us from the two thieves of legalism and liberalism, robbing us of the joy and the power of the gospel to transform our lives. May the indispensable and costliness of the gospel never cease to amaze us. We are forever indebted for the unconditional acceptance and identity we have because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and may it now motivate us to live for your glory. I pray for those in this service and even listening online, God, that if they need to commit their life to Christ, may they do that today, even before the end of this day. May they acknowledge their sin that separates them from you, believe that Christ died in their place for their sins, and then confess him as Lord and Savior. They would give their life to you and want to follow you all the days of their life and live for your glory, finding a deep, durable joy only in you. So, God, we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.